0: Providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data and real-time
1: market analyses: Good afternoon and welcome to another Walker webcast. It is a huge joy and pleasure for me to have my long-standing I'm not going to say old dav my long-standing friend Chris Davenport joining me today for this episode of the Walker Webcast. This is a little, if you will, out of the typical lines of business and politics and authors that we typically do although dab is an author but i thought talking to chris about skiing and about extreme sports and about mountaineering and about risk-taking and about giving back and all the things that chris does in his professional career would be a fascinating hour for our guests to listen in on and i have gotten lots of emails and texts when we announced that Chris was coming on from very excited listeners to hear from Dav and get his insights. And I guess one of the other things that we will definitely do is we will talk a little bit about ski tips. And we will also talk about where to ski this winter in what is turning out to be an incredible winter in North America, not so great in Europe. And it's actually dumping in Japan where I'm actually headed in a little bit more than a month to go ski. And Dav is headed to Japan later today, tomorrow, Dav? Tomorrow morning. Tomorrow morning, off he goes. So, quick intro, Dave, and then we're going to dive in. So, Chris Davenport is considered one of the world's most accomplished big mountain skiers and mountaineers. He has been named one of North America's top 25 skiers by Skiing Magazine and is a two time extreme skiing world champion. He has been featured in over 20 feature ski films, including those from Warren Miller Entertainment and Matchstick Productions. Chris is also a TV reporter and color commentator for ESPN, ABC Sports, and RSN TV. He has won the 24 Hours of Aspen Championship. How many vert did you do in that 24 hours, Dav?
0: Oh, I think it was 260,000 vertical feet or something like that.
1: Just listen to that, folks, 260,000 consecutive vertical feet to those of you who are active skiers. If you can put in 20,000 feet on a given day, you get off the mountain dragging with your tongue on the ground and dabbed it over 200,000. In 2003, he was voted one of Aspen's 100 most influential people, given that there are now over 60 billionaires living in Aspen. That's quite a that's quite a crew there, Dav. Davenport was the first person to ski all 54 of Colorado's peaks over 14,000 feet in elevation. He was inducted into the United States Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame in 2014. And he is just about one of the most fantastic professional athletes you will ever meet. So, Dav, welcome to the Walker webcast.
0: Well, thank you, Willie. It's always a little bit unnerving to hear uh, someone read your resume or whatever like that but the honor is all mine it's really great to be here with you and I think I'm podcast number 130 so I get to join a pretty elite club of people that you've spoken to about business politics and and other things and by the way I should say that not only am I a skier but I'm in the business of skiing and maybe in the future a little bit of politics we
1: shall see (laughs) All right. We're going to talk about that in a bit. So let's dive in here. You grew up kind of surrounded by the ski industry. Your grandfather had a a mountain that he ran back on the East Coast called, what was it? Mount Cranmore? Cranmore, yes. And and he didn't run it, but he was involved with the ownership group. And then your dad was a collegiate skier at DU. I want to jump right to your dad skied in the secret race tell our listeners to what the secret race was dad (laughs) so
0: yes the secret race was a very interesting international gathering of the world's top ski racers in the summer of 1966 and the world cup tour in ski racing as we know it now if you follow this incredible phenom Michaela Schifrin on the U.S. ski team who's just won her 82nd World Cup race, and maybe he's going to win her 83rd today. This is before the World Cup tour started. So there was championships in Austria and France and Germany and Switzerland and the United States. But the only time that the entire world got together was at the world championships once a year. And this little ski area, which has played a big role in my life and my family's life called Portillo Chile, put a bid in to host the 1966 World Alpine Ski Championships, and no one had ever heard of skiing in South America, never mind Portillo, Chile. So, all of these teams from each country descended upon this Chilean 9,000 foot high elevation resort called Portillo in, in August of 1966 and hosted. world championships and it was fabulous so jean-claude keely one of the great legends of the sport was a big winner there but there was some great american talent and some medals won by americans as well but anyway that year 1966 my father was actually not at the race but had heard about it because his coach was there and everyone was so blown away at the conditions at the hospitality at the mountains that the following year his coach brought the University of Denver ski team down there in the summer to train. And you know, since the 60s, since 1967, it's really been a hotbed of summer skiing, not only for people like me who bring clients and guide down there and I run a ski camp, but also the US ski team, the Swiss ski team, the Austrian ski team, they're all coming to Portillo, Chile. So yeah, that was a pretty cool thing that we grew up hearing about. My dad would talk about skiing in Portillo and how amazing it was. And then Years later, both of my sisters who were on the US ski team and racing on the world cup circuit, they were training at Portillo, Chile, and I'm scratching my head, like, I got to figure out a way to get down to this place. So I started a ski camp and we did it at Portillo, Chile. So I've been there 20
1: years now. So we're going to talk about your ski camp in a second, and we're also going to jump right to your skiing career at CU and how you got into Big Mountain. But one quick anecdote, because you talked about all the teams down at Portillo, and I was in Portillo skiing. I'm going to date this 1997 or 1998. And I was with a friend of mine who worked at Credit Suisse and a banker from Credit Suisse in Santiago caught wind that we were up skiing in Portillo. He had no ski clothes hopped in a car, drove up to Portillo. And we were like, what are you going to do for ski clothes? He said, I'm going to go down to the Octagono, which is the building where all the ski teams are. And I'm going to see if I can go buy some clothing from some of these world cup skiers. And so he comes back and he's got a brand new jacket from the Italian team. He's got a new hat from the Swiss team. And he'd gone down and spent a grand total of like a hundred bucks and got the best ski gear in the world. And of course That's the awesome. team members were more than happy to sell him a jacket for 20 bucks. Cause it was, they weren't getting anything for it. So it was really fun. <laughs> so Dav, you went to see you as a racer and raced for two years and then sort of, if you will, got the calling for Big Mountain. Talk for a moment about why it was you switched from being an Alpine racer to going to Big Mountain.
0: Yeah, well, you, Willie, and all of your listeners or viewers will understand how important it is to sometimes be in the right place at the right time and just be ready for what's coming. So, yes, I had grown up in New England and New Hampshire ski racing. But as you mentioned, both of my parents had been out at the University of Denver, and so we had grown up coming to Colorado. So I wanted to ski race in Colorado. So I went to the University of Colorado and, as you mentioned, ski raced for two years. But this is the early 90s when some really seminal ski films had come out, Greg Stump's Blizzard of Oz, Warren Miller movies with with guys like Scott Schmidt and Glenn Plake. And the landscape was sort of changing. We were seeing really exciting things happening in the sport of skiing. And one of those things was the advent of, what we used to call extreme skiing competitions. Now we call it the free ride world tour or big mountain skiing. But these things were just starting the U.S. Extreme Skiing Championships in Crested Butte, Colorado, the World Extreme Skiing Championships in Valdez, Alaska. And I started seeing these things and having friends that were participating in them and going, wow, this is really interesting. I've dedicated my whole life to skiing. I'm a pretty good ski racer, but I'm not gonna make the U.S. ski team or the Olympics. You know, maybe I'll move over and give this a try. This was 1992, 93. So I kind of stopped ski racing and started flying off cliffs for fun. And to describe what this is like, you're basically trying to ski down a steep mountain with trees and rocks and cliffs and, you know, ski as fast and as aggressive on the most difficult line you can and make it look good for some judges. Anyway, my first competition in 94 went great. I started winning things. And by 96, I was world champion. And the industry really sort of started taking note of this, I don't even want to say niche because it started getting quite big. We were skiing on the same products that the consumers buy. you know, racers, they use specialized racing gear, nothing that any of us would ever buy in a shop or ski on the on the resort with. We were basically creating a business for ourselves as brand ambassadors for all of these products and all of these brands and companies. And so after winning the ninety six world championships, I basically wrote a business plan on the flight home of how I was going to take this title and turn it into, what's now been really a 27 year long career, almost 30 year career.
1: I find it to be really fascinating, Dav, in the sense that what you have done with your life and your professional career, there was no role model. It didn't exist. And so, I mean, you, I think about entrepreneurs who come up with an idea about what to do and you were as entrepreneurial as anyone out there in the sense of seeing this opportunity and, and creating not only a lifestyle around it, but creating a career around it. What, I mean, I I think to someone like Tony Hawk, who during that period of time was really taking skateboarding to a different level, maybe Hamilton on the surfing side of things. But what was it that gave you the sense that there was actually money to be made and a career to be made around this extreme outdoor life?
0: Well... I think it might be a stretch to say that I knew at the time that there was money to be made. (laughs) I knew at the time that I loved what I was doing. I had a lot of passion and I had some vision. I could see that there was something there. I'd gotten a great education. I'd gone to an amazing high school in New Hampshire, Holderness School, of which I'm still a trustee. I'd gone to the University of Colorado and done well. I'd worked hard and I wanted to use these skills in some form of business. I mean, if I wasn't going to go be a doctor or a lawyer I wanted to do the thing that I really loved the most, which was ski. And very quickly, anecdotally, I had been on the chairlift in New Hampshire when I was 13 years old on a particularly good ski day with a friend. And I'll never forget looking at each other on the chairlift and, and saying, wouldn't it just be incredible if we could ski every day for the rest of our lives? And now here we are, fast forward to, to your story, I'm starting to live this dream of that 13 year old boy i'm starting to go huh maybe i can actually ski every day so i'm a big fan of performance attributes and successful people and passion is super important one of those but also vision is you know where you take that passion what do you do with it so in those early 90s years i was starting to see that there was a pathway there and i was going to follow it
1: so when you, I think it was your friend Shane who took you over to Crested Butte for the yep. first big mountain, if you will, race, and and you got a you got a sense of it. To those people who don't know what we're talking about as it relates to big mountain skiing and extreme skiing, I a photo that we're going to actually insert here. I don't have it to put up, but we're going to insert it during the replay of this of Dav going off a cliff that's got a sixty <laughs> to seventy foot fall off of it. And he and I were in Aspen this past weekend skiing together, and we were on the gondola, and there was a couple from Mobile, Alabama. Alabama. It was their first trip to Aspen and they didn't have skis on. They just wanted to go to the top of the mountain. And they quickly figured out from comments that I was making and other people in the gondola that Dav was truly a living legend in both the ski community as well as in Aspen. And they're sitting there and I could tell that they couldn't get their head around what it meant to be the extreme skiing champion. And so I went and I pulled up on my phone, this picture of Dav, which you're now seeing jumping off this cliff. And you should have seen the look on these people's face. (laughs) The woman immediately wanted to take a selfie with Dav. It was, it was one of the greatest things. But one of the things I want to understand, Chris, is how do you prepare yourself other than just sort of having somewhat of reckless abandon for that type of feet in the sense that there's the capability of being able to stand on the skis, turn the skis the way that you had very clearly learned as a racer, but going to big mountain, there is that, that responsiveness, the reactivity to, Oh, I'm about to go off this jump. I've got to get prepared for it. And I don't know what's going to come below. How did you have to change either your training or your mental preparedness as you moved from doing gates to jumping off cliffs?
0: It's a really interesting question. And one that I think a lot about because Ultimately, in the big mountains, things are dangerous. I think of what I do as a professional, oftentimes not just through the lens of being a skier, but I look at it through the lens of risk management. I mean, I'm constantly, on a daily basis, whether I'm skiing for myself, for a ski movie, with clients, with my own family, I'm thinking about how I'm managing risk. I'm thinking about what's the worst that can happen in any given situation. So, you know, you just showed that photo, which was an incredible cliff that I had had my eye on for some years. It had never been skied off. So that's a calculated risk. I'm thinking I had thought about all of the things that could go wrong. I would thought about all the things that could go right and just kind of done the math and felt on that particular day because I waited and waited and waited over a period of a couple of years for the perfect snow conditions where I felt like even if I didn't go off accurately, or was a little bit back or whatever it was and landed wrong, I'd still be fine because the snow was so deep and so soft. Now that might sound crazy, but we'll call it a soft landing. It's almost like landing with a parachute. You know, you could land on your back and you'd be totally fine. So in that case, with that photo, that's more of a stunt. That's something that takes a lot of time, a lot of planning. You're talking with other people. I have a photographer there, a safety person there. I'm kind of like, planning this whole thing so that I get the best possible outcome the outcome that I desire and you know nothing's going to go wrong and I had a lot of situations like that in my career where I basically set these things up did all the the homework the due diligence if you will to make sure that the outcome that I wanted was the outcome I was going to get and if you know in some way things went wrong it still wouldn't be that bad Climbing in the Himalaya or Alaska, or there's oftentimes things that are beyond your control, but you still have to sort of set these barriers on either side so that when it spirals out of control, you're still within your comfort zone. People oftentimes ask me, like, how do you deal with fear? Well, I don't really deal with fear because fear is what happens when you've already made a series of mistakes. And then you're like, oh shit, this isn't good, right? There's so many crossovers and I know you know this because you and I've talked about it a lot. There's so many crossovers between being an athlete and business and the way that you sort of look at the risks that you're gonna take, whether it's an investment or a new business partner or all of these things. I think about it the exact same way. and And I really believe that a big part of my success as a skier and as an athlete has been that ability to kind of look at it from what we would consider you know, a business sense of like what's the outcome I'm looking for? Where's my tolerance? What am I willing to, to do to succeed? And and all of those kinds of things. So it's fun to kind of use jumping off a cliff as a metaphor for being a, a successful business person, but it's actually quite poignant, I think.
1: I've heard you talk about the language of the mountains. And yes. What I'm curious about, Dav, is when did you go from, if you will? taking calculated risks, as you said, that jump was more of kind of a stunt than it was, you know, it's very planned, but at the same time, it was kind of throwing yourself off this cliff to really understanding the language of the mountains. Because one of the great things you now have, having been in the mountains for as long as you have and guided as much as you had and summited Everest and et cetera, et cetera, all the different accolades that you've done, you've developed this incredible knowledge of the language of the mountains. But when you all of a sudden stop and say, I need to really be attuned to what's happening around me rather than what's right in front of me.
0: When I started educating myself in the mountains, and that means taking avalanche courses, guide courses, kind of more formal education, I realized that what I thought I knew was really never going to be enough. I feel like I'm I'm always a student. I'm still a student. Sometimes I'll tell people I'm, I'm getting my PhD in skiing, but I'm never going to graduate because we're always learning. And the people that are watching might be asking language of the mountains. Well, what's that? Well, it's a certain fluency that we're talking about. So for instance, if you and I are in the room and you're going off about all of the details of consumer lending, like, I'm not going to understand that. I, I'm not fluent in that space or in that language. Likewise, if if I'm in the room with someone who's never been in the mountains or in snow before, and I'm talking about various persistent weak layers in the snowpack and avalanche hazard, they're going to have no idea what I'm talking about. So the language of the mountains really is just all the information that we as human beings need to make good decisions or to make the right decision is literally right in front of us mother nature does not hide anything. It's right there. so it's up to us as people to interpret the things that are literally right in front of us. And it's the same thing in business. Usually things aren't hidden. I mean, they can be, there's nefarious things that happen, but a lot of times this information is right out there in front of us. And it's up to us to do the due diligence and and interpret it. And so I've been working for 20 years on, on this fluency. So when I go out there, I can listen, I can look, I can smell, I can use all of my senses, and most importantly, my sixth sense, my intuition, to kind of feel how any given situation is playing out or is speaking to me. And it allows me most times to, to make the right decision, especially when it's a critical one, you know, one that might be life or death, whether it's to continue climbing higher on a Himalayan 8,000 meter peak or it's time to turn around, things like that. So I'm a big believer in the, the idea of sort of plugging in to the natural world and getting all that feedback and having that inform my decision-making process.
1: As I was talking to a buddy of mine last night, watching the national championship, which really wasn't much of a game, He, I was talking <laughs> about this aspect of you and all your training. And his question was, when you think about the sixth sense and the language of the mountains, do you have an orientation to have to conquering the mountain or becoming one with the mountain?
0: Yeah, I absolutely want to become one with the mountain. There's the word conquering, I hate. I do have a ton of respect for the generations of skiers and climbers that have come before us, and especially going back to the golden age of of mountaineering in the 70s and 60s and 50s when a lot of the highest mountains in the world were climbed. Those climbers and skiers oftentimes talked about conquering the mountain. But I feel like that's in a way somewhat disrespectful and I'm not judging them because that's just a different era. But I wanna be one with the mountain. I wanna I want be respecting the mountain. I want to be sharing the experience with all of my friends and partners and clients and whoever it is and kind of feel like we came away with a gift that mother nature gave us a wonderful day up there and we should feel full of gratitude and we should feel lucky to have had it. I think if you start thinking about it in the way of like, I'm going to climb or I'm going to ski this thing at all costs and I'm going to conquer it, you're kind of missing the point. And that's just never really sat well with me. So yeah, I'm more of a, A guy who's going to do everything I can to be one with nature and get the best possible experience out of it and the best possible experience for the people, as I said, that that are with me. Because at the end of the day, I'm spending a lot of my year guiding people all over the world and showing them a good time, keeping them safe. And I want them to, at the end of the day, at the end of the trip, go home and say, that's the best ski trip I've ever done. And you don't do that by saying, we conquered it.
1: (laughs) Right. So you do a camp down in Portillo every summer. Yeah, I want to dive for two seconds into just if someone listens to this and says, I got this really great ski tip from Chris Davenport, a legend of skiing. First of all, in that week that you do the camp, I've heard you talk about the improvement that people have in the camp that seems very distinct from people going to a resort and having a private lesson for three days or five days or whatever the case is. Why do you think the sort of the camp experience is so much more beneficial to people's skiing skills?
0: Yeah. There's a number of reasons why this particular program works really well for sort of advanced level skiers to take it to the next level. And the first reason is my coaches are a who's who of the world's best free skiers from Darren Rolfs to Cody Townsend to Ingrid Backstrom to Wendy Fisher and others, world champions, Olympians. These people are just unmatched and they're my close friends but all, and colleagues, but also people that I have so much respect for. So when you come to our program, it's a progressive week. We're going to start out slow and kind of get to know you as a skier, get to know your little quirks and bad habits and good habits because everybody has them. No one skis perfectly, at least no one that I've ever met. And we want to kind of break down those things and then build them back up so that at the end of the week, you're literally having the best day on snow that you've ever had. You're going to ski with a different coach every single day. The location itself, Portillo, Chile, lends itself to this type of skiing. There's everything from amazing groomed runs to do little drills on, but then really big, steep, off-piste runs. We do some hiking, some traversing. You're kind of learning how to be. We talked about this, learning how to be more fluent in that mountain environment, learning the language of the mountains, learning how to move across a traverse, learning how to read avalanche terrain, just becoming a better sort of all-arounder, a lot better mountain person. So those two things, the, the coaches and the location are really important. But then also you're, you're living in Hotel Portillo, which is this kind of like a cruise ship. It's basically just one hotel up in the mountains. There's nowhere to go. There's no town, village or anything. And you get to know... 30, 40, 50 other people that are in the hotel that are all skiers. And it kind of elevates you as a dedicated skier. I think yeah. you come away from that program and you're like, you know what? I'm in. I'm like, if I wasn't in before, I'm definitely in now as someone who's committed to being a great skier.
1: So talk for a second about hands and knees. Yeah. Like the tips <laughs> that people are going to take away from hearing Chris Davenport talk about how right. they improve. If they can't come to Portillo to have you work on it, what are the two things they ought to take to? whatever mountain they happen to be sure. visiting this winter.
0: <laughs> well, it's funny, like the fundamentals of skiing are, are pretty basic. And then you can just drill down through layers and layers and layers of details and nuance and and we continue to do that. Even as I've you know been skiing my entire life, 50 years, I'm still trying to like improve. But you mentioned the college football national championship. You know, if I'm a Georgia running back and you're a TCU linebacker and I'm coming at you with the ball. You're not gonna tackle me standing tall with your feet together and your hands down by your side. I'm gonna run you right over. It's the same thing in skiing. You're not gonna be able to react to the terrain that is coming at you if you have your feet together and you're standing tall with your you know knees straight and sitting back. So the human athletic position is the same for all sports. You know, And it's hands up, eyes forward, knees bent, generally in a very forward position, ready to move at anything that comes at you. And so that's the same in skiing. We want to be ready, especially when we're off the groomed runs and we're in, you know, crud or varied terrain where the mountain is sort of changing as we're skiing down. And we might be going 20, 30, 40 miles an hour, right? So you got to be bent at the knees. We like to tell people knees to skis, push the knees to your skis, feel the front of your ski boot. If you're feeling the back of your ski boot and your hands are down by the pockets of your pants, you're going to have a bad time. If you're sitting on your heels and your feet are together, you're going to have a bad time. (laughs) So we want to be forward, right? Everything moving down the mountain. And one thing that's interesting is the steeper that the mountain gets, the more we, in our mind, kind of want to get back because we're a little bit afraid, perhaps. And actually, the opposite is true. The steeper it gets, the more forward you actually have to get over the front of your skis. So that's one of the fundamental things that we work on because we see people with all sorts of different body positions fundamentally on standing on their skis in their ski boots and we want to try to work with that and then we just take it to deeper and deeper levels
1: so let's talk for a moment about the if you will the synthesis of the combination of your mountaineering background and your skiing background 2011 you headed over to Everest to Summit Everest which you did I believe on the 20th of May But before you summited Everest on the 20th of May, you skied the Lhotse face. And I've seen the video of you skiing the Lhotse face, which is just an unbelievable thing. And we're going to put a picture in here for those that are watching this to show Mm -hmm. the camp off to the right where you all were living, if you will, ready to summit Everest. And then the tracks that you and Neil made as you skied down the Lhotse face. Talk for a moment, Dab, about what that experience was like and i guess just as a quick question i mean this with all sincerity any bodies or oxygen tanks that you had to avoid as you were skiing down the lhotse face
0: so no bodies or oxygen tanks which was nice no one actually goes out onto the lhotse face itself because it's a big steep exposed piece of real estate so 99.9% of everest Mount Everest climbers stick to the edge of the face where the fixed ropes are. And they're on those fixed ropes in a, in a boot pack climbing up. And it's kind of just, that's where everybody is. So going back to the beginning of your question, yes, 2011, I had a client that I had guided on Colorado 14ers. We actually just started skiing together. And then that went to mountaineering. We went to Denali in Alaska and in a base camp in Denali after summiting and having a great trip there, he turned to me and he's like, Hey, what do you think about going to Everest next year? And I was like, big smile. You know, those goosebump moments in your life where you'll just never forget it. And I actually get goosebumps even thinking about it. This Everest trip, and that, especially that ski descent and being on the summit was all of that. Just top, top, top moments of my life. Before we left, I went to my client and I said, listen, since we're going there, do you mind if Neil, the other guide who I was working with and I bring our skis? Because, you know, you never know. Maybe mother nature gives us a gift and there's some good skiing to be had. And uh, Fe is his name. He said, sure, that'd be cool to see you guys ski. So we brought skis thinking maybe there's a 10, 20% chance that we would get to use them at all because generally these high Himalayan mountains are pretty icy, very windy. They don't get good ski conditions. It's very, very, very rare, but we put ourselves in position to succeed. We were there at the right place at the right time and mother nature did her thing and it snowed about a foot on the face before our second rotation as we were acclimatizing. So it wasn't when we were summoning, it was like a week before. We did all of our avalanche sort of due diligence and it seemed really safe. We felt good about it, that intu- intuition was kicking in. I'm like, you know what, I actually feel this feels good. And Neil and I went up to about 25,000 feet and we skied down the Lhotse face. That, at the time, it had only been done, I think, five or six times in history. And we skied it in powder snow. And it was just like, yeah, I can't even really describe the feeling. But talk about a fly on a gigantic wall. You're a little teeny human on this massive face going, wow, this is pretty scary. But uh, what, it was what fantastic. Was, what, and was then, more,
1: what was more exciting to have, That actual moment of skiing and saying, man, we're actually doing this and making beautiful turns and beautiful powder on Everest or summiting?
0: to be honest, I've I've never been asked that question of which one of those was more exciting. In some ways, they're a little bit different because the skiing was a bonus. It wasn't something that we knew we would do. It wasn't something that we thought would happen. It was just kind of like, wow, that was really cool. Okay. So now that that's done, we really got to focus on getting our our client, the person who's paying to be there and paying us to do our job, get him up and down safely. It's a a funny little anecdote. You know, so we're standing on the summit of Everest. It's a gorgeous day. No wind. I mean, literally could not have asked for a better day. And I had a satellite phone in my hand. And before I left Aspen, my wife, Jessica, who is a mountain person and totally understands the risks involved. She's like, whatever you do, don't effing call me from the summit. (laughs) I I love that. Because why would she say that, Willie? Because she'd think that
1: you were in trouble.
0: No, because getting down is the most important yeah. part. No one cares if you get to the top. They care if you get back down, right? Ed Visters famously said that yeah. our mutual friend yep. from Ketchum Idaho. Ed's one of was the first American to climb all the eight thousand meter peaks. And he was, I can't remember the exact words, but I mean he told me it's like no one cares if you get to the top. They care if you get to the bottom. Right. So that's what my wife had said to me. So I I didn't call her from the top. We had a great climb, get got back down the next day, got all the way down to base camp. And then I called her. And I oftentimes joke if I ever write an autobiography, it'll be called Don't Call Me From the Summit.
1: It's yeah, yeah. <laughs> great. So let's take a little bit of a world tour, Dev, given you've skied everywhere in the world and just give our listeners an idea of why do they want to jump on a plane like you're going to do tomorrow and go to Japan. Already talked about Latin America. So let's leave Latin America behind. Why do they want to go to Canada? Why do they want to go to Europe? What's just in summary fashion, why would someone want to hop on an airplane and travel outside of the continental United States to go ski?
0: Something about the sport of skiing. And there are some other sports that offer the same type of experience, but the characteristics of skiing are different everywhere you go. And, A real dedicated skier wants to experience all of those different feelings. So for instance, tomorrow morning, I'm going to Japan. Why am I going to Hokkaido, the North Island of Japan? It is literally the snowiest place on the planet. It is cold. You've got just to the West, you've got Siberia, like 3000 miles of tundra and cold air. And then you've got the sea of Japan, 600 miles of open ocean. And then you've got the Japanese mountains and that cold air comes and picks up all that moisture and lifts it and it just snows and snows and snows and it's just a never mind culturally and the food it's just an incredible powder skiing experience not super steep but really deep and once people go there they 9 times out of 10 they're blown away and they keep coming back you know skiing in the alps for instance in in switzerland and austria and italy france There's so much culture, it goes back hundreds of years, these high Alpine valleys and villages with interconnected lift systems and incredible restaurants and bars all over the mountains and in great terrain, that itself is one of the great skiing experiences. I've skied on all seven continents and just a month ago got back from skiing in Antarctica. That's right, Antarctica. People were like, how, what? Yeah, the bottom of the earth. We take a boat, a ship, from Ushuaia, Argentina. We sail across the Drake Passage, which is one of the gnarliest or most treacherous sections of ocean on the planet. And you arrive at the Antarctic Peninsula after two days and you're skiing on Antarctica, which is the coldest, driest, and highest tallest continent on the planet. People don't know that, but we're living at sea level on a ship. We're taking Zodiacs to shore. We're skiing amongst penguin colonies, whales, seals, like the wildlife experience is incredible. I could talk for an hour about Antarctica, but we've got limited time. Let's go to Africa. Wait, skiing in Africa? Yep, skiing in Africa. The Atlas Mountains in Morocco, just south of Spain, the Atlas Mountains go up to 13,000 feet. They're huge. And the latitude is the same as New England. We don't think about how far north sort of northern Africa and Europe is compared to the United States, but it snows there. I was there actually right as COVID was kind of taking a grip on the in the planet in the beginning of March of 2020. And we like had to get out of Marrakesh as quick as we could, but the skiing there is fantastic. People love to ask me where I haven't been. And so I'll quickly wrap this up by saying, I've never skied in Greenland, but I've got two ski trips off of a yacht in Greenland this coming spring. And I'm really looking forward to visiting Greenland.
1: If I gave you a plane ticket to anywhere in the world to ski your last day, Are you hopping in your car and going down to Ajax? Are you hopping on an airplane and flying to Portillo? Or are you going somewhere else? You're going to Valdez and going back to where you won the world championship.
0: Well, Willie, first, I have to applaud you for your very interesting questions. That's a good one that I also don't think I've ever had. Last plane ticket for my last run, I'm going to Alaska. I'm going to Valdez, Alaska, and I'm getting on a 3,000-foot, 50-degree face in perfect powder conditions, and I'm going to go 50 miles an hour down that sucker, laying huge turns, just like you mentioned earlier, Laird Hamilton, the big wave surfer. Getting on a a run like that in Alaska is like riding Jaws or Mavericks or these um, Nazare in Portugal, these famous big waves of the world. It's the same experience of intense connection to nature. You know if you make one mistake, you are going to literally tomahawk your way all the way to the bottom, upside down, lose all your gear. But you get to the bottom in one piece and you're like, I'm good. It doesn't get any better than that.
1: <laughs> so you've made a career and a living out of what you've done. Your first sponsorship was with Solomon Skis. And then you went to Kesley Skis, where you were for quite some time. Talk for a moment about the business of outdoor guiding, skiing, hiking, mountaineering, mm. biking, you and I've done bike trips where people, you know, you're, you're an amazing all around athlete. You're known for your skiing, but I will tell anyone who is biked with me, I'm a reasonably good biker. Dab is a really good biker. <laughs> so talk for a moment, I guess, two things. One, how'd you make a career out of it? And then after we've talked about that for a moment, I want to jump to fitness because you, unlike those of us who are weekend warriors, you rely on your body. And your body must perform. And so I want to talk for a moment about how you stay in such good shape. So actually, let's go with that first. Let's do the shape and then we'll move into the sponsorships and how you made a career because I then want to go to peak. So let's do it that way. Let's go health first.
0: So I was lucky enough to kind of grow up in a family that really valued health and wellness and athletics. My siblings and I were all athletes doing many different sports from team sports like lacrosse and soccer to individual sports like skiing and climbing and cycling. You just, you mentioned cycling. I mean, I I bike raced at a very high level and cycling has been, I will say my other very important passion in my life outside of skiing. I literally ride my bike every single day that I'm not on skis, or at least from kind of May to October. I guess our parents and maybe to a degree, my grandfather kind of instilled in us this idea of of athleticism and and sort of well-being being connected to success in life in general and I still believe in that. I don't have any tattoos, but I always thought if I got one it would be a hashtag always be training. You know, I don't walk up steps, I run up steps. I don't take elevators, I walk up the stairs. You know, I like to constantly be moving in a way that feels like it's kind of I don't know, helping me be more fit. I've been a vegetarian for 35 years. I never really liked meat in the first place, but I you know, look back on that now. And that's like actually been an important part of my healthy diet and kind of disposition. So any
1: difference on nutrition as it relates to winter sports versus summer sports? So in other words, do you go back to the same type of nutrition when you're biking and mountaineering that you do when you're skiing?
0: No, they're kind of different. So the winter sports are more power driven and less aerobic. Although I do a lot of skinning, meaning like backcountry skiing where I have
1: to climb About the PDP. You did the PDP last winter. I did. The PDG. Yeah. The patrol. PDG, the Grop sorry. Grop. Yeah. The PDG.
0: Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, that's more like a cycling thing. Typically for me, I'm at least 10, but sometimes 15 pounds lighter in the summer during cycling season, because in cycling, it's all about your power to weight ratio. But when we're doing a gravity sport like skiing, it's not about that, you know, gravity's pushing us down so we can be a little bigger and a little stronger. So I've kind of always enjoyed this fluctuation in my, sort of body composition, if you will, where in the winter I can, I can be, and I don't really do this anymore, but I used to lift weights a lot. I'd be in the gym seven days a week, getting ready for ski season. I think my obsession with fitness in my sort of mid to late teens through my maybe early thirties was a bit much. And so now I hate the gym (laughs) and I just, the outdoors is my gym. I mean, I I'm, I'm recreating outside every day and that's how I get my fitness now. I think, yeah, just generally having a mindset of taking care of your body, being conscious of what you're putting in and living in the outdoors as an athlete, it's like, it's a pretty great, pretty great way to go. And, you know, sometimes I'll just do two runs of skiing in the morning. And then I immediately feel like I'm so much more productive and I can go bang out a bunch of work much more so than if I didn't do that. You know, you know that when you get up five in the morning, go for a run, go for an early morning bike ride, then you go to the office. You're way more productive than if you haven't done it.
1: Yeah. So let's talk about the business right. side of things. So, as I mentioned, Solomon was your first sponsorship then with Kessie for a long period of time. As you think about how you've made a career and a living out of what you've done How much of it has been sponsorship dollars versus guiding dollars versus paid appearance dollars? How can we all think about what you've done to make such a successful career? And quite honestly, in a very entrepreneurial way because no one had ever done it before.
0: I wear a lot of hats in the business of
1: skiing. Physically and literally, right? I mean, literally, you know, both sides, right?
0: It's true. Yeah, literally and figuratively. figuratively. Yeah. So in our sport, as a professional skier, I'm independent, basically. You have to be entrepreneurial. I'm not part of a team. I'm not part of a league. I don't have a schedule. You know, I got to playing you know football for the Denver Broncos or whatever. Like that is your job. That's all you're doing. You're playing football for the Broncos. So I have to be creative. I've got to come up with interesting ways to deliver value to people that I'm working with, and those could be sponsors like brands you mentioned, Solomon Kesley Skis, my new ski company that I have with Bodie Miller Peak Skis we have to think about how we get creative. We can't just kind of sit back and get a paycheck and do nothing, that doesn't work. You're gonna have a very short career. So you asked about the income side. So right now, and this is sort of fluctuated over time, but right now probably 50% of my income is these brand partnerships that I have with a company like Peak Skis or Nerona Clothing or Aspen Snowmass, on and on and on. I've got probably 12 or 13 Brands that I'm working with. Some of them I'm invested in in part ownership, uh, have equity with, and some are just, you know, partners that are supporting me. And then another probably 20% would be paid speaking engagements. I do a lot of slideshows, corporate speaking, different things talking about risk management and goal setting and performance attributes as it pertains to my life and business. And then the other. Let's, let's call it another 20% is, is guiding, taking people all over the world on these trips that you and I have talked about. like going to Japan tomorrow. I'm, I've got three weeks in a row of three different groups of clients that I will be guiding around and showing an incredible ski experience to, And then some smaller bits on the end, I've written a couple books as you referenced. So those books have sold really well some television stuff, working with outside TV now. I I do the World Cup race announcing for the upcoming races in Aspen, the World Cup ski races. I've done a couple Olympics. So, you know, event announcing. And then, yeah, I don't know, other little things. But that's kind of a picture of what my business looks like. It's fun because every day is different. It allows me to be creative and kind of use all the different skills that I've learned. And listen, there's not many professional athletes that are my age. In skiing or really in any other sport. And one of the things that I've kind of figured out, I think I'm still working on it, is the key to longevity is collaboration, is good communication, is being a good partner, right? Like being there for the people that are paying you and not not having it be a one-way street, but a two-way street where you're delivering, as I said, the value that they're looking for and also coming up with new ideas and new ways for them to grow their business. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm trying to ski every day, but I'm also trying to sell skis. I'm trying to sell clothing. I'm trying to sell energy drinks or, you know, people coming to Aspen Snowmass, what have you. I am basically a walking billboard for these brands. They're paying me to be like, let's go. These are the best skis out
1: there. So we'll talk about skis in two seconds. I will only <laughs> say to those listening, I've had uh, I've speak to client groups. I've had to uh, ski with client groups. He is truly exceptional and, and what he talks about and what he gets Our clients to think about are all the things that we've talked about today as it relates to risk management, as it relates to building a business plan on your career, on building your business and how you're going to build it. Dav's really big about planning because in many of the places that he gets to, you don't have the ability to make an error, as we talked about previously with Ed Beasters on the top of Mount Everest. I mean, when you get into those circumstances, it's one thing to make an error of making a bad investment. And hopefully we don't all make many bad investments. But when you're sitting there and your life is at risk... Back to Jesse saying to you, don't call me yeah. from the top. You're not, you're not done with this until you get down to the bottom. Let's talk for a moment about Peak, because I find it to be amazing. You mentioned it. You and Bodhi have started this new ski company. I remember specifically, Dab, when you got your first Canyon bike, and Canyon approached selling bikes through a direct-to-consumer channel. And they, they basically said, we're not going to sell through bike distribution companies and, and bike shops. We're going to go direct to the consumer and Canyon has been a massive success on the bike side. And you and Bodie are focused on not only have you built an incredible ski because you nicely gave me a pair to ski with you on last weekend and boy, oh boy, did they rip. So anyone watching this, who is in for a new pair of skis, I would strongly suggest you go to peetskis.com and look it up. And they've got actually a promotion right now. I'll do it for you. Dab. They got a two for one special going on. So if you go on and buy them right now you can get two pairs for for the cost of one and you can actually get the 104s or the 110s for your powder skis and the 98s for your more cruiser skis but i will tell you there's something else but talk for a moment about how i mean i think about you and bodie and your skiing type that as you sat around and talked about what kind of skis you want to build there's a difference in what you are looking for in a ski and what Bodie's looking for in a ski, basically based off of your backgrounds. But then talk about the D2C model and how you all are going about building the company.
0: Yeah, well, you're hired by the way. He's <laughs> already a great salesperson. So, I have to also just mention really the founders of Peak were Bodie and Andy Worth. Andy's our CEO. He came from years as the CEO of Steamboat Springs and then of Squaw Valley, now Palisades Tahoe. So, he brings kind of the the strong business acumen to our Peak Skis brand. Bodie is a legend in the sport of skiing and he's also an incredibly detailed engineer, kind of almost like a mad genius when it comes to thinking about the performance of the skis and how we build the skis. And then, you know, of course I come with all of of, of my experience into this, into this group. I do want to
1: note one quick thing, Deb, you actually have a business title which just cracked me up because here's my buddy who's like lived his whole life outside of the corporate world, but done incredibly well as an entrepreneur. But you actually are senior director of skiing and innovation, which I love. And I'm, I think I'm going to call you senior director from now on. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to like, I love the fact you have a corporate title. Anyway, sorry to interrupt you.
0: No that's fun. Yeah, I'm senior director of skiing and innovation and it's it's my job to in some ways be the face of the brand and you mentioned Canyon bicycles and it's a it's a great case study. We actually have the the president of Canyon USA is on our Peak Ski's board. We are really modeling our business practices and our business model after the way Canyon has done their business. I think the most important part of the direct to consumer experience is the fact that we own the relationship with our customer. So you buy a pair of skis. We know your name. We know where you live. We've got all sorts of information about you. We're going to put handwritten notes in your box when we deliver the skis. We're going to call you. I mean, I'm literally calling peak customers saying, hey, it's Chris Davenport. Thanks for buying these skis. How do you like them? And they're like, wait, what? Chris, really? Other brands don't do that and really can't do that because when you buy a pair of skis at a ski shop, it's only the ski shop that knows who you are. The company does not know. So we love that close-knit connection to our consumers, to our customers. And it also allows for a lot more feedback. In the end, we can build things that our customers are asking for, and we will do that going forward. We're a startup right now. We're in our first year. We've been raising money. We've been building skis and selling skis. And our first collection this year is just six models. Next year that grows. We'll have coming in 2324 Peak by Dav, which is my personal collection, which is basically backcountry skis, lighter weight skis meant for going up and down. Bodie's collection is the Alpine skis, very high performance things for skiing on the ski resort as, as you and I tested the other day. They're fantastic. And we feel like the success that we've seen with Canyon and other brands, there's a golf brand that's done particularly well. And I mean, look, Apple has, of course brick and mortar stores, but it's basically a direct consumer company. Most people are ordering their Apple products on apple.com. So we feel like we can, we can do this. And, and it's an exciting time. And there's a transitional period where people are like, I don't know if I can buy these skis. Like, how do I test them? How do I demo them? I don't know if I like them. It's hundred percent money back guarantee for a month. Buy the ski, ski it. If you don't like it, we take it back for free. So there's like, there's no risk. You know, I spent 12 years. You mentioned Solomon. That was my first sponsor. I spent 12 years with them. I learned a ton going to France every year in the engineering room, building skis. We built some really famous models. I I wrote some design briefs. I took that experience and left Solomon to help start Kessley skis, Austrian brand of which I was an owner. We sold that in 2018. I guess for a few years, I was kind of I was still with Kessley, but I was kind of looking around for what might be the next thing, and I'm so thrilled that this is the next thing, because it's not just another ski company. We're looking to do what hasn't been done before. And by the way, we're not just selling skis. In the next three to five years, we want to reimagine the entire manufacturing process, license all of this IP, and build skis for everybody. We'll see what happens, but that's that's part of the goal.
1: I want to get to the volume number here in a second, Dev, because I don't think anyone really understands kind of how much you have to, how many ski pairs of skis you need to kind of manufacture and sell to kind of have a successful ski brand. But one just thing, as you were thinking, I was thinking about that. Kessler was Austrian built, and then it was bought and moved to Czechoslovakia. And the skis were are now built in Czechoslovakia. I was just curious: was the the tragic death of the Czech billionaire up at Tradrillo the same gentleman who bought Kessler skis and took it to the Czech Republic?
0: No, and okay. thank you for clarifying. Yes, it's the Czech Republic, not Czechoslovakia. That that country ended yeah. 20 years right. ago.
1: Czech Republic,
0: <laughs> yeah. Right. And okay. Actually, so no, that accident
1: with with your friend Greg Harms, which Peter, is yeah, tragic. Greg Harms, yeah. he
0: he was a Czech guy, but not the owner of Kesley. Our skis are built in Slovenia, actually, and at the factory from Ilan. Ilan is a old and and storied ski brand in Slovenia and that's our our OEM partner we'll call it right now so they're making our skis and we're we're pretty flexible so we might manufacture some skis with one partner and some skis with another partner in the future we're not necessarily locked into building all of our skis with one manufacturer but right now it's in slovenia
1: but so but a manufacturer like K2 will sell how many pairs of skis yeah. on an annual basis and what do you all focus on with a more kind of niche brand in peak
0: yeah. So some of the bigger brands in the sport of skiing, we'll call it Head, Atomic, Solomon, Fisher, maybe K2, Vocal, would all be around 100,000 pairs or, you know, give or take 20 or 30. Sometimes on a good year, maybe they're up to one hundred forty or 150,000 in that space. Sort of more mid range brands like a Kessler or Stokely or some others might be selling 20 to 30,000. And then you've got a lot of smaller players that are in the, a hundred to a couple thousand pairs. There's a ton of boutique brands. That's really a a segment of the industry that's exploded in the last decade. But we are, I can't tell you the exact number, but we're somewhere, I mean, again, this is a startup. We're in our first year. We're doing thousands of pairs of skis and we feel very comfortable that we can grow into that sort of those bigger categories in the next two to four years. So
1: let's finish on Protect Our Winners. We are having a wonderful winter in the Western United States as it relates to snowfall. I had a colleague of mine today on a call talking about all these rains in California and that nobody's really talking about the fact that the water table is filling back up. And obviously, yeah. there's the issue of how much are we actually capturing. There's a ton in the snowpack that we're capturing for at least now. But a lot that's going on in LA, for instance, is just run off and we're going to have mudslides and, and it's actually going to cause more damage than, than help. But you've been... The leading voice on protect our winners. And I've heard you at length, Dav, talk about the fact that, you know, this is a the winner sports industry creates a huge number of jobs. And it's not to try and move away from the fossil fuel industry to try and impact the people who work in the fossil fuel industry, but it's to protect our winners, to be able to keep the industries and the jobs and the, and the recreation that happen in winter sports. And if we don't, I mean, look at Europe this winter where, I mean, there are resorts that are just shut down They're They're trying to run a world cup race and they've got one little streak of, of snow that goes down the middle of just a Brown field. Talk for a moment about, I mean, I know why you're so passionate about it, but talk for a moment about protect our winners and what you're trying to do.
0: Great. Yeah. Thanks for that. For those of you that don't know, Protect Our Winters is a is a nonprofit that basically is bringing together the outdoor industry, sort of to have a singular voice to protect the things we love these snowy winters and these wonderful public lands and outside spaces that are so valuable to so many people. And you mentioned it. It's not just about recreation and resources. It's about economy and jobs. Basically, there's over 50 million people in the United States alone that recreate in the outdoors in one form or another. And it might be hunting and fishing, hook and bullet sports. It might be skiing or biking or running or camping or, you know, rafting, you, you name it. These these create something like an $850 billion industry year over year. So this is worth protecting because a lot of these communities depend on snowy winters to fill up the, the chairlifts, to fill up the restaurants and the hotels so people were buying equipment at these retail shops and, and other things. And when you have a, a good winter, obviously the economic benefit in in mountain towns is, is good. Like everyone's making more money. But when you have a bad winter, like they're having in Europe right now in the Alps, you mentioned that, I mean, there's no snow in the Alps. It's quite sad. I think there's some snow on, in the forecast. But the economic, the negative economic impact is much worse than the positive impact of a good winner. The negative impact of a bad winner is tens of percentage points worse on these economies. So they're struggling over there. When there's no snow, no one buys skis, no one goes on vacations, no one goes to these restaurants, no one books the hotel rooms, and everybody's left still having bills to pay because when you order things for your, your restaurant or your retail store or your hotel, or your ski resort in the the spring or summer prior you have no idea what the weather is going to be like anyway long story short we as an organization are just trying to bring people together not only to educate and understand what the impacts are but to Create activists so that you can call your local elected officials or, you know, go get out there and vote with your dollars, whatever it might be. Like if you care about the outdoors and you care about clean air and water, which I think everybody does, it's up to us as humans to do something about it. Because frankly, Willie, you and I know this. We're not going on a very... Very good course right now with what's happening on the planet. I mean, I'm in California. I'm in Marin County right now. It was just hailing and thundering here, and it never does that in Marin or in San Francisco. My sister's driveway was like a river. They need the water, but yeah, you mentioned capturing it, storing it. That's all really important. And and you're not going to do that with one cycle. You need 10 years of of wet to kind of get rid of the drought in the Western United States. And by the way, you mentioned good skiing in the West. Yeah, the snow has been awesome. But you go to the east. Which is a huge part of the national ski market. There's no snow at all.
1: I mean, look, I love skiing with you over the weekend. I'm super happy you took the time to be able to do this. You're a dear friend. You're also a gift to the skiing community, the outdoor community, and to our overall community. Have a blast in Japan. To anyone who wants to follow Dav's postings on Instagram, his handle is steep skiing. So look up steep skiing and you will see great pictures of Dav with powder snow going over his head in about two days. I look forward to seeing you in Aspen soon, my friend.
0: Thank you so much, Willie. And thanks, everybody. Uh, This has been a blast. And Willie, yeah, can't wait to get back on the slopes with you. And uh, yeah,
1: pray for some more snow out there. Great. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today. We'll see you again next week. Take care, Daph. Safe travels.